morning, beloved. Thank you for joining us in this gathering of the ARC Church family. It's time to turn to God's word. So let me lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll start. Father, we pray that you would even now reach down and touch and bless us. Wherever we are right now, Lord, we pray that you would give us a heightened concentration so that we might be able to think carefully about your word. We pray that you would give us an increased measure of faith so that we can receive uh, what you reveal in your word. We pray that you would help us to treasure being embodied creatures whose bodies, whose very form, Lord, points to the eternal truths of the gospel. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue this morning our series, which we've called Embodied. We've been thinking on the theological meaning of the body. Last week, we were thinking about marriage and how uh, human marriage has meaning beyond the marriage itself, that the marriage is a sign. It points forward to spiritual realities. We talked about um, the bodies in marriage and sex are signs of self-giving love, of, number two, life-giving creation, three, communion with God, and four, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But of course, marriage is not the only relationship status that exists. There is also singleness. And in truth, all of us will spend the first couple of decades of our life, at least, um, single. And some of us will be single again after marriage. Because of divorce or widowhood, we move in and out of singleness for various reasons at different stages of our life. So singleness is a stable feature of human life. It affects us all, so we all need to think carefully about it. But our thinking about singleness, its meaning, and its beauty may not be what it should be. Sam Albury, in his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, points out that behind many views of singleness, quote, lies a serious belief, one that is widespread in the Western world today. Without sex, you can't really experience what it means to be truly human. According to this thinking, our sense of personhood is directly attached to our sex life. To ignore this side of us, to deliberately not express and fulfill it, is to actually do harm to ourselves. It is a fundamental aspect of our humanity, and repressing it, it is, it is not healthy. Albert captures something else that's commonly thought in the culture when he continues writing, In the West, we have virtually collapsed sex and intimacy into each other. Where you have one, you're assumed to have the other. We can't really conceive of genuine intimacy without its being ultimately sexual. That's how the world thinks about singleness. As we start the sermon this morning, let me ask you just a couple of questions, just to thought check ourselves. Do you think that a single person is not fully human without marriage and sex, or at least just sex? Do you think single people harm themselves when they do not fulfill their desire for sexual expression. 
Do you think that the choice between marriage and singleness is really a choice between intimacy and loneliness? Or do you think, think that way before you were married? Do you think that way now if you're single? Be honest with yourself about what you think about singleness. I want you to be honest with yourself because God already knows your thoughts. I want you to be honest with yourself because your joy depends on telling the truth about where you are and then letting the Bible bring you to deeper, fuller, more complete truth. My hope is to help us think theologically about singleness, about our embodied singleness, about sex and the kingdom of heaven. My hope is that we might come to see the, the beauty of singleness as a theological sign. And reading the signs, we might find the elusive joy and fulfillment of singleness itself. I mean, since as human beings, we spend so much of our time, so much of our life as embodied individuals outside of marriage, we need to know the Bible's truth about what the embodied single life means. And so to do this this morning, I want us to ask and answer three questions. Number one, what is singleness? Let's not take the definition of that for granted. What is singleness? Number two, what does singleness signify? What does singleness signify? And number three, how do we then begin as a church family, as Christians, to value biblical singleness? How do we begin to value it in a world and a culture that devalues it? Well, that's the ground we want to cover this morning. Let's think about that first question. What is singleness? Well, we want to think about it, again, given a worldly definition and given a, a biblical perspective. The most common answer we hear in the sort of world of people who are not yet Christians uh, is that singleness is something is something like somebody who is not married. It's the basic definition. In fact, almost everyone defines singleness as a kind of deficit. As the absence of something. It's the absence of a spouse. It's the absence of sex. It's the absence of family. It's the absence of companionship, happiness, and fulfillment. In a worldly view of singleness, being single means lacking what is good, basically. And so therefore, singleness itself is not good, not intrinsically. I mean, when we say someone is single, you can almost hear the tears. When we think of single, we too often think incomplete and less than. We think of single people as essentially waiting for somebody to say yes. And honestly, our understanding of embodiment and our identities um, have become way too mathematical. One is less than two, so singleness is less than marriage. Two is less than three, so being married without children is less than being married with children. What do you think happens to a person who regularly defines their life by the things that are absent from their life? It's a constant deficits to to um, uh, a constant attention, excuse me, to deficits tends to result in negativity, depression, discontentment, and even self hate. Now, the best 
understanding that the world can offer singleness, but best in air quotes there, is, is yes, singleness is a period of life when someone is not married. But then the world goes on to say, but it's also a period in life when someone can sow their wild oats, play the field, live a little. Singleness is when you explore your sexuality before settling down. Now, in this view of singleness, uh, singleness is not the problem. Abstinence is. People don't mind being single as long as they are free to express themselves sexually. Now, I trust that you've been paying attention to life. What happens to the person who uses their singleness to explore and to satisfy their every sexual desire. Pay attention to what goes on with them. Ever notice how they're the ones ultimately who seem like they can never maintain a healthy relationship and they're the ones who end up broken and unhappy after so many sexual exploits? It's because those who take a worldly view of singleness have not understood the difference between intimacy and sex and not understood the beauty and the purpose of singleness. So I want to turn then to think about this definition, this question, what is singleness from a biblical perspective, from a Christian perspective? It's, it's something different than what the world tells us. To quote Sam Albert, uh, again from his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, from the point of view of Christianity, to be single means being both unmarried and committed, for as long as we remain un unmarried, to sexual abstinence. In the reality, the opposite of married is not single. The opposite of married is celibate. The celibate person accepts the call of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, where the Apostle Paul writes there, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So God's will is that every one of us be sanctified, be holy. And, and that we express that holiness by controlling our bodies and controlling our desires so that we avoid sexual immorality. Now, this applies, this applies to every one of us, this applies to the married and the unmarried alike. For the married, that means only having sex with your spouse. For the single person, that means not having sex until married. In both cases, the, 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 the Christian must bring the body under self-control, must bring the, the desires under personal agency. That's why I prefer the word celibate to single. The word celibate implies a deliberate choice. It implies commitment. It, it, it implies control of our bodies when it comes to sexual desire. Remember, one of the things we saw in Genesis 
um, that disorders our relationship with our bodies is desire, is sinful desire having its way. And, and desire becomes, uh, becomes a god, becomes an idol. And that interrupts and disrupts our relationship to our bodies and to God. So that lesson is coming home now in this area of sexual ethics. We need to have control of our desires so that we order our bodies under the lordship of Christ. And singles, celibate people, are to have this kind of self-control, along with married people who restrict themselves to their spouses. Christopher West writes this, Sexual purity requires ongoing training in self-mastery so that we are in control of our sexual desires and not vice versa. To be celibate is to possess your own body and to possess or control your own desires in the power of the Holy Spirit, which 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us God has given to us as a gift. To be celibate is to yield your desires and your bodies to God and his work. Celibacy is not about being overlooked for marriage. It's about being used for the kingdom of God. So in the church, we need a language for talking about celibate members in a way that points toward this vocation, toward their flourishing, and toward kingdom usefulness. Instead of defining the celibate man or woman as essentially not married, or waiting to be married, we need to underline agency and fullness in the calling of celibacy for the kingdom. So a couple quick applications while we're thinking about definitions here. Uh, one is an application to choice. My, my single brother or sister, do you realize that you have a choice to make here, a very real choice to make? I don't mean the choice of whether or not to get married. I mean the more essential choice of whether or not to control your body. You have agency over your desires and over your body if you are properly ordered beneath God's will and filled and living according to his spirit. You will have to maintain that control for as long as you are single. The question is, have you ever made an active commitment to celibacy? Will you choose celibacy? Will you choose to present your body as a living sacrifice to God in holiness and purity? There's another application I want to make here, and it has to do with what we know, how we think. I just want to let you know that if you are single, you are not a victim. Your singleness is not something that has been, quote, done to you. It's not given to you to harm you. You're not forgotten by God. In fact, in your singleness, particularly in your celibacy, you have been blessed by God. Now, if it doesn't feel like a blessing to you, then one of two things is true. That either, number one, you're experiencing the very real burdens that come along with being uh, a single celibate person. These burdens are real in a fallen world. And or number two, you have lost sight of the beauty of celibacy and what it signifies. Now, here's the thing. If you lose sight of the beauty of celibacy, it will aggravate the burdens of celibacy. 
So what we have to know, what we must not forget, is that singleness, like marriage, is a sign. It's a beautiful sign. It points to something glorious that actually only you, in your singleness, in your embodied celibacy, can model. You are right now, in your celibacy, blessed by God. Which brings us to our second question. What does celibacy signify? What does it point to? What is it? What does it symbolize? I mean, to see the to see the beauty of celibacy, we need to go back to our theology of the body. And when we do, we see that the body of a celibate person is a sign that points to three tremendous realities. It, in order to to find celibacy beautiful, we need to know what our celibacy is for. So I'm going to give you these three things. Number one. Celibacy signifies the excellence of wholehearted devotion to God in this life. Celibacy signifies the excellence of wholehearted devotion to God in this life. Let's see this in a couple of passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Look with me first at Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 to 12. The disciples said to him, that is Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now follow what's happening in context. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, uh, some religious people, some strictly religious people, the Pharisees, come to Jesus, and they are testing Jesus by asking him a question about marriage and divorce. They want to know why it's permissible to get a divorce. Jesus answers their question, but he corrects them by saying that divorce was never God's original intent. He made man male and female, and the two were to become one flesh and were to live that way, um, for their entire life. Now, the disciples hear him say this, and they understand that, okay, then marriage must be hard, and, and marriage must be, in some sense, risky because you're not supposed to get out of it once you enter it. That's verse 10. Then Jesus says to the disciples in verse 11, yep, <laughs> marriage is hard. Uh, that, that's, that's true enough. Then in verse 12, Jesus begins talking about eunuchs. We don't talk about eunuchs much these days. A eunuch is a man who has been castrated. Therefore, a eunuch is a man who has no family, has no marriage, has no children. In the ancient world, a eunuch was thought to be sort of the perfect servant of kings and queens. Uh, they, they represented no threat. They, they had no ambition to have an heir of their own that might rival the throne. Um, they, were, they were, again, thought to be ideal servants. So one writer says, the eunuch was also a model of devoted service because he was without the distractions of marriage and family. No personal family matters competed for his allegiances. He could afford complete, unhindered loyalty to his king and his king's concerns. In Matthew 19, 12, Jesus talks about three ways a person becomes a eunuch, by birth, by force, and by choice. The Lord really wants to bring our attention 
to that third category, those who are eunuchs by choice for the kingdom of heaven. Here, eunuch is standing in as a kind of symbol for the single person who lives in wholehearted devotion to his king, namely God, namely Christ. And so the, the single person here, uh, the one who is voluntarily celibate, is a kind of eunuch. And their lives point to the excellence of wholehearted devotion to God. Notice in verse 12 of Matthew 19, men and women, men and women enter this vocation for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this vocation allows a person to enjoy the realities of the kingdom in a unique way and to give their whole body and their whole life um, in devoted service to the kingdom in a unique way. So marital sex, as we talked about last week, signifies the kingdom in one way. Celibacy signifies the kingdom in another way. Both marriage and celibacy are both Christian vocations. They are both theologies and signs of the relationship the Christian is meant to have with Christ. It's not that marriages symbolize Christ and the church, but celibacy or singleness doesn't. No, celibacy or singleness symbolizes the Christian and the kingdom. And the way a eunuch supports their king with total devotion. Notice one more thing in verse 12, Matthew 19, verse 12. Jesus basically says that being a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven is better than being married. He, he pressing in now. He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now at this point, there are all a bunch of single people like, I ain't got that call and I can't receive that. I just need to be married. Da, 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 da. I just want you to know you're trading words with Jesus right now. And our Lord is trying to describe for us a more excellent way. A way that accompanies his blessing and a way that signifies something majestic. Wholehearted devotion to God. We really want to trade words with Jesus at this point? He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it, which I take to mean that if we are celibate persons, if we are single persons, rather than quibbling about whether or not we right now feel like we can receive this, we ought to ask for grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to be enabled to receive it. Because Jesus is saying, this is actually better than marriage. A life of total devotion to God is an excellent life. Now, if, we, if we're confused about that from Matthew chapter 19, I think the Apostle Paul makes the very same argument in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 to 35. Look there with me. Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man, the single man, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman, the, the celibate, single woman, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. 
But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order, and notice, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what a eunuch has, undivided devotion to the Lord. And this is why Paul is arguing that singleness or celibacy is, in essence, a better vocation than marriage. He's not dogging marriage. He's saying marriage is hard. He's not saying that singleness is easy. Singleness is hard, too. It has its own burdens. But he said if you compare the two, the married person has divided loyalties, how to please a spouse and how to please the Lord. But the single person has one loyalty, how to please the Lord. And that life has a simplicity to it. It has an order to it. Paul calls it a good order. And that life facilitates single-hearted devotion to God. Only celibacy in this life can be a sign of single-hearted devotion to God in the life to come. Now, both Jesus and Paul are saying that in this life, Singleness is better than marriage. Both Jesus and Paul were single. We wrote not just theologically, but experientially. And the question is, beloved, do you accept what Jesus says about celibacy and devotion to him? Celibacy signifies wholehearted devotion to God. But it signifies something else too. Number two, celibacy is a sign of a complete life in the resurrection. Celibacy is a sign of a complete life in the resurrection. So after Jesus set the Pharisees straight in Matthew chapter 19, he has an encounter with the other religious party in Matthew chapter 22. So he's dealt with the conservatives. Now in Matthew 22, he's dealing with the liberals, the Sadducees. These are people who deny the supernatural. They don't believe the resurrection, for example, is real. And that's what they want to test Jesus about in Matthew 22, the resurrection. They developed this little story where a woman has been married seven times to seven different brothers. She marries and each brother dies and she doesn't have any children with any of them. And so when the woman dies, they then pose this question to Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? It's their little tricky way of trying to say the resurrection makes no sense. But notice how Jesus responds to them in Matthew 22, verses 29 and 30. The Lord says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I chuckle when I read verse 29 because I think when it comes to marriage and when it comes to singleness, Jesus' words in verse 29 could just as easily be said to the Christian church today. The Christian church that acts like marriage is the greatest thing since the incarnation. And that if you're not married, something's wrong with you. I think Jesus would say, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And and to single people who are like, oh, just sing, you know, singleness is just a burden. I hate it. I don't want to be in it. And on and on and on. I think Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. And he tells us in the next verse that actually 
singleness is pointing to something. It is signifying something. It is revealing something very grand. In the resurrection, when it comes to human relationships, everyone will be single. Everyone will be single. There will be no human marriage. The, the sign that human marriage is in this life, which represents our relationship with Christ, Christ in the church, that sign will be completed. And, and as we said last week, will not be needed anymore. So in the resurrection, each human being stands complete in Christ in the fullest sense possible. Not needing marriage. We will all be single. There will be one marriage, the church to Christ, but in human relationships, in those glorified bodies in eternity, we'll each be single. We'll be like the angels. Not meaning we'll have wings and floating around, but that we will not marry. So when a Christian lives a celibate life, their bodily singleness and self-control point to this resurrection reality. And it's important to see, beloved, that all of human history and all of redemptive history and all of human relationships are moving toward a satisfied single life in glory. One writer, Oliver O'Donovan, writes this, the New Testament church conceived of marriage and singleness as alternative vocations each a worthy form of life. The two together comprising the whole Christian witness to the nature of affectionate community. The one declared that God had vindicated the order of creation, it's referring to marriage. The other pointed beyond to his eschatological transformation. That's pointing to eternity. I love the way Matthew Lee Anderson comments on that on that quote from O'Donovan when he writes, in other words, marriage points to Genesis, singleness to Revelation. When you read through the Bible, you'll notice the story develops and the emphasis changes. First, Adam appears single. And God says it is not good for him to be alone. Now, that's not a commentary on his status as a single person. It's a commentary on his inability to fulfill God's mission to multiply and fill the earth. He can't do that alone. In that sense, it's not good for him to be alone. So God creates Eve and performs the first marriage at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Now from there, throughout the Old Testament, marriage plays a central role in God's redemptive plans. So the seed is, is sort of followed through these different couples, these different marriages and families. But then we come to the New Testament, and the emphasis shifts. As we've already seen in, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that it's better to be single than to be married. Marriage is still a wonderful vocation, a wonderful sign of the church's relationship to Christ. But now in the New Testament, singleness is validated as intrinsically good, right, beneficial, and even advantageous compared to marriage. And then finally, we end with the resurrection and the kingdom of heaven. 
when all human marriages, human marriages, are removed, and the only marriage that remains is Christ and the church, and every redeemed Christian lives a complete and glorified life for all eternity as a single human being. The world, and even a lot of the church, spends all of its time suggesting, or outright saying, that, that a single person is incomplete without marriage and family. But the theological reality is exactly the opposite. Embodied singleness points to the perfect completion that we are destined for in the resurrection. So it's wrong to suggest that marriage is the completeness that single people need. Marriage was never meant to complete us. That's not its purpose. In fact, as people made in God's image, we are already complete. How can something be made in God's image and yet be incomplete? Our lives as individuals are signs pointing our completion out. If we embrace the single body's theological meaning and learn to live with self-control. Let me put it to you this way. If you are single and celibate, you are not missing out. You're not. Everyone receives God's goodness in one form or another. Some in temporary marriages that point to consummation in heaven, and some in a singleness that will take on eternality and that points to completion in heaven. Your celibacy as an embodied person points to the reality of your completeness in Christ, both now and forever. Which brings us to a third thing that um, celibacy signifies. Celibacy bears witness to our ultimate relationship to Jesus. The celibate Christian really is one who's showing that our satisfaction ultimately is only found in a relationship with Christ. Now, to see this, I want us to think about one of the ways that Jesus is referred to uh, in the Gospels in his earthly ministry. We can see it in a couple of places. So look with me at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Days, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Well, look with me in John chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. You yourselves bear me witness, John the Baptist says, that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must 
decrease. In, in both of these passages, Jesus in Mark 2 says of himself, and John the Baptist in John 3 says of Jesus, Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the one who is to marry the bride, his church. But when does Jesus marry her? It's not until the kingdom comes in full. For all of his earthly life and ministry, our Lord Jesus was the bridegroom, but he never got married. He never had an earthly marriage. He never started a biological family. The perfect person was always celibate, always single. Rather than enter into an earthly marriage, he lived celibate, looking forward to the ultimate marriage the ultimate relationship that he would have with his bride, the church. The Apostle Paul did the same thing and recommends it to the church. That's why he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. There he's referring to two categories of single people, those who are unmarried, never married before, and those who are widowed, who were single, then married, then their spouse died, and now they're single again. He says, I say to, to all those categories of people who are single and celibate, it is good for them to remain just like he was, single and celibate. I wonder if you notice something in 1 Corinthians 7, 8. The not good of Genesis 2 has been replaced by the is good of 1 Corinthians 7. Singleness or celibacy is good because it points to fulfillment in an ultimate relationship with Jesus. And today, who are the people who reflect this dual reality of being both a bride and at the same time never married or not currently married? Who are the people who reflect the is good of singleness? It's the celibate persons in the Christian church. The celibate saint enters into an aspect of Jesus' life and anticipation that no one else does. Not quite the same way. Your celibacy bears witness to the fulfillment of that final marriage when we are together communing with Christ in a consummated kingdom. Sam Albury has written so wonderfully about singleness. I want to quote him at length here. He writes, singleness for us now, Sam is single. He um, deals with same-sex attraction. So he is celibate and will likely be celibate for his life. He writes, singleness for us now is also a way of bearing witness to this reality. Like Jesus, we can live in a way that anticipates what is to come. Singleness now is a way of saying that this future reality is so certain and so good that we can embrace it now. It is a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ we possess what is. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, Singleness shows us its sufficiency. The presence of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is a visible, physical testimony to the fact that the end of all our longing 
comes in Jesus. Celibacy isn't a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. We will never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for, to point us to God's love for us in Christ. And this is why, as one writer puts it, the absence of visible lifetime singleness within our communities suggests that our affirmation of marriage and the goodness of sexual pleasure have overstepped their boundaries. A church without singles has lost one of its main ways of warning against a sexual idolatry that has driven the whole world mad. The Lord wants all those who are single to, I love this phrase from Lori Ferguson Wilbert, wants all those who are celibate to feel the full membership of the living. But feeling the full membership of the living does not require marriage. It requires first that we think correctly about what celibacy is, what it is pointing to in terms of devotion to God now, completeness in the resurrection then, and ultimate satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And then when we get the sign right, we've got to plant it where it can be seen. Celibacy requires a community of loving sacredly touching, supportive saints who honor faithful singleness, faithful celibacy as a Christian vocation. This kind of biblical singleness or celibacy is what Jesus knew and lived. It is what Paul knew and lived. And right now, today, we have so many folks like Jesus and Paul knowing and living the reality of this celibacy that points to what's ultimate. So we all have a stake in this, including those of us who will one day go from married to being single again. And so an important question for us as we conclude is, how do we begin to apply biblical singleness? Well, first, I think all of us who are not Christians need to learn to read the sign that the celibate Christian is pointing to. That is complete fulfillment, completion itself in Jesus Christ. If, if you're not yet a Christian, you need that completion. You need that, that fulfillment. You need that hope of a resurrection where even if you have never married, you will know the complete and full um, union and consummation of knowing God. And you only enter that relationship through the gospel, through believing that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. He has come for a bride, the church. He has given his life for her, dying for her on the cross. In that death, he pays for the bride price. He sheds his own blood so that he might purchase us away from sin, purchase us away from judgment. He might make us clean, and he might make us his bride. And he rises from the grave three days later, and he's coming again to get his bride. And, and you want to be the bride of Christ. We want you to be in the bride of Christ. And, and so that means 
you have to repent of your sins, confess them to God, and turn away from them. And you have to believe in Jesus. You, in fact, have to marry Jesus spiritually by putting your faith in him as your Lord, as your Savior, as your God, who redeems you and saves you and leads you in his righteousness. First thing is you've got to see all these Christians around you as pointing to your need for Jesus. You need to hear this message and believe that you might be saved and live eternally with him. Now, as a Christian community, we have to go on to do some things to change the culture of churches so that they are places where people who are single can flourish, where people who are celibate are honored. I don't know if you remember the testimony of our sister Kalara Sue um, a couple months before we were the pandemic and we no longer able to meet. We had a number of our um, single and celibate brothers and sisters sharing their testimonies. And Kalara said something in the opening of her testimony that, that I hope stuck in your heart the way it stuck in mine. And she said basically the, the church doesn't know what to do with with singles who are you know not married and not particularly vexed about being married who are um, accomplished professionally or 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 serving in various ways and and content in some level with that and we don't have no category for particularly single women other than wife and mother that stuck me because that should not be so not if we believe our bibles not if we believe the theology of celibacy and the single body as we've been thinking about it here so we, we need to turn the curve on that, and I want to give us just some beginnings. These don't solve everything, but I want to give us um, five quick applications as a church um, that will help us begin to at least till the ground so that we could sort of have fresh soil for honoring celibacy. Number one, we have to relax about relationship status. <laughs> Neither celibacy nor singleness were meant to satisfy us. Both are pointers to Jesus and to eternal glory. This means we need to relax about them, our, our, our relationship status. This means the pressure, the pressure's off, right? If, if neither marriage nor singleness were meant to satisfy us, then there's no pressure really to find that perfect someone to then begin that relationship and to find completion or satisfaction. You already have completion and satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the name of happiness. Jesus. So we've got to relax about our relationship status. Number two, we have to repent for despising God's gifts. The challenge with seeing the call to celibacy as excellent and a good thing is that too many of us are all too prepared to reject God's gifts. We are struggling with unbelief when it comes to this matter. We reject his gifts when we call the, the call not good the things that he calls good. God has called celibacy good, clean. Even now, even now, beloved, I know there's someone's heart that is hardening toward this teaching because they want what they want. I want you to know if that's you, that your desires then are disordered. You want your vision of a married life more than you want God's vision or even God himself. That, beloved, is idolatry. It will not break you, 
but, or excuse me, it will not bless you, it will break you. So we have to repent of despising God's gift, particularly the, the, the gift, the blessing of celibacy. Number three, we have to repent of idolizing marriage. I'm not sure I need to say more about that, but the sort of Christian worship of marriage needs to be repented of. We need to stop acting as if marriage is what completes and what satisfies us. It doesn't. Number four, we have to repent of enslaving single people. People are not single or celibate so that they can serve more in the church than their married counterparts. They are not single or celibate so they can help out families with children. Those are good things to do. Don't get me wrong. We want to encourage service. We want to encourage um, serving families and so on. All that's fine. But a single person, someone who is a eunuch for the kingdom, is most fundamentally an embodied individual who is seeking wholehearted devotion to God, who ought to be encouraged to feel and experience the completeness that they have uh, as a celibate person, uh, and, and, and who is someone who ought to be encouraged to find their ultimate satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the project God has going on in a single person's life. It's not for us to come along and say, oh, since you're single, that must mean you ain't got nothing to do, so come over here and do these things. No. Singleness has its burdens, like finding friends, like finding time with people. It's striking how having no one to do nothing with is a real chore and challenge to people who are um, celibate, single. Striking how, how, how having a close friend move to another city or move just an hour away or 45 minutes away uh, in D.C., uproots your entire social life. And so if we are meant for, as we thought about a couple weeks ago, sacred touch, if we are meant as social beings to be connected with people, as, as people who are married who take for granted having people around to do nothing with and so on and so forth, we got to recognize that some of the things that we take for granted are single brothers and sisters as a matter of flourishing and being fully embodied and being healthy actually have to intentionally work on. So what you think of as free time may actually be time that they need to invest um, to sort of develop and cultivate relationships and community and family that we, we take for granted. They're not our servants. They're not our slaves. They are people set apart to find their delight in Christ. That's what we need to encourage. Number five and finally, we have to create a culture that nourishes, encourages, and celebrates Faithful celibacy. It's kind of awkward to talk about celibacy, I think, in most churches. Because instantly, we, we, you know, the mind goes to sex or the absence of sex, and, and we're, we're already nervous about talking about sex in Christian circles. Uh, and that's, again, because we don't understand what sex points to and, and the spiritual realities beyond the physical act. Um, and so we don't have spaces and places where we typically celebrate those people who are, are single and who are, are faithful to God with their bodies. But we need to figure out how to do that. We give just one thing to pray for at our own church family. There, there are probably a million ways we need to do this, but let me just give you one that I think might be important. 
we need to pray that the Lord would grant us uh, more celibate, celibate saints who serve as pastors and deacons and deaconesses. I think in a lot of churches, Jesus couldn't be the pastor because he wasn't married. It'd be fine for Paul to write an apostolic letter, but he couldn't be the pastor because he wasn't married. We've turned marriage up to even a qualification for a Christian service. We've idolized it so far. But actually what we need are examples sort of before us as a congregation of people who are stewarding their bodies and stewarding their um, singleness in such a way that they are sort of held up examples to us of what it looks like to flourish in that capacity. What it looks like to really um, be sort of living with a single-hearted devotion to God and, and, and living with a sense of completeness uh, as, a, as an individual and, and pointing to that completeness that we will all have as individuals in the resurrection. What it looks like to find your satisfaction in Christ. We need that in leadership because in, in church, often leadership is one of the most prominent sort of positions in the body. And so would you pray for for pastors and deacons and deaconesses uh, like precious um, that that are are really examples to us how to live this way how to live this way with faith even if you are struggling but 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 to show us to point us to these spiritual realities. Here's, here's another quick way that we can do this. We can create a culture that nourishes, encourages, and celebrates faithful celibacy. Another way we can do this is stop asking single people when they're going to get married. Instead, start telling people how their singleness models devotion to Christ, completeness as a person and satisfaction in Jesus. Commend them for what the, the, the sign of their singleness points to. Affirm that. Encourage that. Let them be. So stop asking them when they're going to get married. And learn to realize that when you get to the point where you stop asking them when they're going to get married, because you've given up on them getting married, that's, that's twice the blow. That's twice the discouragement. That's twice the dissatisfaction. So we got to learn how to even talk differently ways in ways that value celibacy. Okay, that's it. I'm done. We want to encourage our brothers and sisters to be the signs that they are. And ask God for grace in it. He's a God full of grace. I know he'll give it if only we believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, how sufficient it is for all of life. Help us to believe it. Help us to apply it. Help us to walk it out as a community, O oh Lord. And help us as a community to especially look to our brothers and sisters who are celibate and see in them all the pointers, all the signs you have left us for that coming resurrected reality when we shall all be single and we shall all be satisfied. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen.